is a very great pleasure to visit Duke University once again, to worship in this altogether magnificent chapel, and to renew fellowship with many friends of mine in North Carolina. I was especially pleased to see the president of your university at the front door, our distinguished former governor, who was once my boss when I was president of North Carolina A&T College. He's the person who gave me a leave of absence to spend some time with the Peace Corps in Nigeria. I was glad to see him here uh, as a friend. I was also glad to see that there's some hope for high education when the president serves the Lord on Sunday morning. The text for today is from the epistle to the Galatians, the fifth chapter, the first verse. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath set you free, and be not entangled again to the yoke of bondage. St. Paul was saying to the people in Galatia what needs to be said to us. Namely, we all have a lot more freedom than we choose to use. The human spirit is capable of exploring margins of freedom that most of us never see, never recognize, because it is so much simpler to go through life imitating those about us and with a blind loyalty to custom and tradition that remain unexamined. We all talk about freedom and we claim that this is the highest thing that we prize, especially in our society. You can get almost any kind of rally going if the rallying cry is freedom. But I'm often afraid that this is hypocritical and, and it's a grand illusion because most people are terribly afraid of the use of real freedom. And this is what Paul found to be the case among the people in the churches of Galatia. They had been set free from the law, they had been set free from narrow proscriptions about life and how it should be lived. They had been called to a new liberty with the reign of love within their hearts, with Christ and a new rulership over their lives. But this frightened them. And they wanted to crawl back to their old ways because this seemed to be entirely too much freedom for them. And because of this, our freedom is always being taken from us by someone who knows this 
There's always some demagogue after another who will rise up in our midst and who will convince us that one quick, easy slogan is better than another. There's always someone who would exploit this trait of ours, someone who knows that we are not earnest about the use of freedom. Now, the last threat to come upon us, I perceive, is the threat of the computer age. Now, this is not just some trifling complaint about a new machine that's in our midst because it's bound to do good. It would take an awful lot of ignorance for someone to be against an advancement like the hasty recall of data through electronic processes. The computer is here to stay. It's a good thing. But the misuse of the computer could be, in our time, one of the major threats to our freedom. You see, personhood means being totally aware of choices. It means being awake and alert to options. It means standing on the threshold of decision, looking over the entire horizon, choosing the way we want to go. The latest challenge to all of this is that data on us is going to be lumped together. Policies are going to be made on the basis of averages, means, percentages. And the next thing we know, all of us are going to be robotized with what is tantamount to not just a new movement among us, but an entirely new age. I got a new insurance policy the other day in the mail, and I noticed the number on the insurance policy was the same as my Social Security number, and I called back and they said, all we do is put our number in front and then add your Social Security number. I went to a bank to buy a small savings certificate, and she asked me for my Social Security number, and when I gave it, she just put another little a couple of letters in front of it and said, this is your savings account number. I found out that the license plates in New York State and in many other states have been changed, and they're all now going to be three letters and three numbers. When I inquired about this, they said, this is so that all of the states will have license plates that are made alike, and they can keep track of automobiles crossing state lines. Now, some of this is bound to be good, and there is no need to question it. Well, why would anybody be worried about a thing like this? I would be worried about it because I'm afraid of what happens to people when everything about them gets quantifiable, everything about them gets to be punched on a card, with eight or nine holes that says don't fold, spindle, or mutilate. And then great big decisions are made on the basis of this kind of digital processing. Not long ago, a man came out with an article that said that black people were inherently inferior because he had made some intelligence tests that proved this. And nobody really could deny that he had gone off and made some tests that, that brought this out. But here is the mischievous use of data. 
What kind of test did he use? What kinds of questions did he ask? Whom did he ask? Where did he take these questions? What was the environment in which all of this went on? And why was this done in the beginning? When all of this data gets pumped into a computer and somebody comes up with the conclusion that here is a congenital, anthropological, basic inferiority, then people start saying, then why don't we cut out some of the money we're spending on schools? Why don't we cut out some of the special programs because you can't do anything to help these people anyhow? This is the mischievous use of this kind of electronic data processing. Because of the likelihood that nobody will get behind the machine to ask the hard questions that need to be asked. When we were discussing this, I asked someone, uh, how did uh, Mr. Jensen account for the, the smart black people who were in the world? And he admitted that there were some. He said, well, they had a certain gene that came because of mixed parentage. Uh, they must have had some non-black relatives somewhere in the background. Well, that's all right, but this theory does not account for non-black people who may not be smart. And one must leave the possibility open that there could be some non-black people who are not so smart. The same thing happened when Mr. Monaghan studied the black family. He came up with the conclusion that the problem was that we had so many solo parents and the black male had run off and left his family in too large a number. Well, now that statistic standing all by itself is very indicting. But there isn't the commensurate data regarding what had happened to the black male to cause him to do this sort of thing. Who talked about the manner in which he had been treated as a boy? and how he had been reduced to the status of a child. I can remember when I was a college graduate working at a department store in Norfolk, I was standing outside shining brass for $12 a week. And everybody who came by me, I had to call Mr. And every one of them called me by my first name. That's all right, I didn't mind. Except when an 18-year-old white boy came by who had just finished high school, and I had to call him Mr. also, and he too called me by my first name. Mr. Monaghan didn't get into any of this kind of thing. All he did was punch the holes and punch the cards and slide them in the machine and come up with an answer. And then people began to accept the answer. Then they gave it a fancy name and decided to come up with a program called benign neglect because the problem is too grave. This is what frightens me about entering the computer age. You know and I know that an awful lot about life is not quantifiable. The most profound aspects are not quantifiable. When I become spiritually exhausted and drop to my knees in prayer and ask God to restore my soul, there is nothing quantifiable about that. What hole do you punch in a card when that happens to me? When I discover a surge of necessity to do much better than I've been doing, 
When I become ashamed of low levels of mediocre performance, what, what hole do I punch then? When I am overwhelmed with my love of my family and when I want to be near them when my heart aches and yearns to be closer to my brothers whom I have not seen for a long time, and when I have emotions that come rarely indeed, what hole do I punch that? What number do I assign to this? I remember going to a class reunion, the class of 1937 of the Booker T. Washington High School of Norfolk, Virginia, than which there is no richer. And I remember asking questions about my classmates. We all knew what had happened to the big shots. All the lawyers' kids and the government workers' kids, we knew where they were. Many of them were right there, driving their fancy cars and wearing the latest styles, and we applauded their success. But we had one fellow in our class who didn't quite make it so big. In fact, we didn't know what had happened to him. He had what was called the rickets. His legs were severely bowed and he could hardly walk. No matter what time he left home to get to school, he got there after everybody else. He never was in class when the teacher gave the first explanations about the conjugation of a French verb, about a simple equation in algebra. He always missed the first 10 to 12 minutes and had to ask somebody, what is she talking about now? He had a lot of pride. He used to wear collars that were well starched and pressed and he didn't want these collars to shrink so he, he put a handkerchief around his neck to guard his collar against the perspiration that seemed always to flow from his scalp. His head was wet all the time. It took such an effort to get from first floor to third floor, second floor to first floor. And I went around those people sitting around a swimming pool outside near Virginia Beach and I said to them, whatever happened to him? And nobody knew. Nobody knew. We didn't know whether or not he had lost his mind and died in a mental institution. We didn't know whether or not he had committed a murder and gone to prison for life. We didn't know whether or not he'd gone to a tuberculosis or a sanitarium. We didn't know what had happened to him. But we knew what had happened to all of the people who had a fortunate beginning in life. Any kind of scale that you would want to use, this fellow paid a higher price for his high school diploma than any of the rest of us. He was much more of a person, much more of a man. He had overcome much more than any of us. But we didn't even know what had happened to him. And how can anybody there quantify the kind of sacrifice that he had made? My grandmother was a widow before she was 40 years old with seven small children. She was born in slavery and was emancipated in Chesterfield County, Virginia. After her emancipation and after a few more years, they, they opened up Hampton Institute and her family sent her to Hampton Institute to be trained as a, 
as a teacher. Her husband died and left her with these seven children by herself. She was a very religious woman. She reared these seven children. She gave all of them a chance to go to college in her own way, and how she did it only God knows. She never was on welfare. I never heard her begging anybody. I always heard her talking about pride and hard work and keeping your chin up, keeping your shoulders back. Such strength I have rarely seen in a person. And from that one woman, there are now more than 65 people who have finished college. Her strength has been felt in every one of them. I used to hear her humming sometimes as she sat in a chair in a prayerful mood, and she would be, she would be humming a tune that I learned her, later learned uh, to be this song. She would be singing, There's something within me that holdeth the reins, something within me that banishes pain, something within me I cannot explain. All that I know is there is something within. This is that non-quantifiable aspect of life out of which personhood is made. And when we try to reduce all of this to simple mathematical analysis and then try to make major decisions about it, we make some awful mistakes. But come next and suppose that we were all going to be programmed and all of us were going to be categorized and put on these little cards. Suppose everything could be programmed about us. Who's going to program the programmer? Who's going to fix him? I remember the Peace Corps, how we used to select volunteers. We'd get a letter from a country overseas, and they would say, we want 300 teachers. Uh, we want them to be between ages uh, 24 and 36. We want X number married. We want some in mathematics, some in science, you know. And, and then they would say what kinds of people could survive. They, would, they could not take people with asthma, nobody with diabetes. And so we would get a tape and put it in the computer with all of this on there, the laundry list. What does Ghana want? And we would put it on the tape. Then we would put some 45,000 applications that had come in and put them in the machine. And, and by the time two or three seconds had passed, this machine would have selected for us 300 people to go to Ghana. Now when we got them overseas and some of them turned out to be kooks or alcoholics or mental defectives or what have you, then we would come back and say, who chose these people? Well, you know, the computer chose them. Well, who programmed the computer? Then we would go looking for that guy who programmed the computer to see why he could pick up on some of these aberrations as he went through. This is the basic question. You know, Mr. Skinner wrote a book called Beyond Freedom. And in that book, he alleges that we really don't have much freedom anyway. We think we do. But almost everything that we do is conditioned by birth, by glands, by historical process. We really aren't as free as we think we are. Therefore, since we aren't free, why don't we just go on and computerize everybody and get us a computerized society? Make us a neat incubator right here in Durham, North Carolina or some other place like that and then make everybody conform to what we design as the most 
as the optimum condition for human growth and development. That's a pretty neat scheme. But who's going to do the designing? And who told him that he was free to do anything like that? Why is it that the rest of us aren't free, but he's free? Where did he get his freedom from to program the rest of us? I know where he got it from. He got it from the feeling of freedom that every one of us has. This is all that we can ask of people. You don't know how free you are, but we ask you to use as much of that freedom as indeed you feel that you have. This is what Paul was saying to the people of Galatia. Use the freedom that you've got. I don't know what God's will is for my life, but all I know is that the noblest exercise upon which I could embark would be the search for his will for my life. I don't know how much freedom I've got. I'll never know how much freedom I've got until I use all of it that I see right now and then watch it grow as I use it. I'll never forget meeting two strange fellows in Kenya, in Africa. I was traveling in Africa with Vice President Humphrey. He was sent on a mission and they wanted someone to go with him who had been in Africa for a time so he wouldn't make blunders uh, going around saying things that he ought not to say. So I was to go along with him to chat with him and help to explain things. So we came to the airport in Nairobi in Kenya and as we came down the ramp, I saw a great big fella at the bottom waving to me so enthusiastically. I came down, I recognized him. He was a fullback at another college that A&T College used to play all the time. And I hated him, really, because he used to run through our line like it wasn't standing there. And, uh, but nevertheless, in Africa, I gave him a big bear hug. And he squeezed the wind out of me, and I returned it. And I said, and the beauty is that you came out here to meet me. How did you know I was on this plane? He said, well, Doc, I'm sorry, but I didn't know you on it, and I didn't come out here to meet you. I was glad to see you. Well, did you come to meet someone else? Vice President Humphrey? He said, no, I came to meet the sergeant. Here he comes. And here came a great, big, strapping sergeant. Old 250, 260 nearly seven feet tall, and the whole plane just shook when he came down the steps. I said, Sergeant, have you been on the flight all the time? He said, yes, I've been up front. What were you doing up front, I said. He said, I live with a little box up there that has all the hotline to Moscow, the names and telephone numbers of all the cabinet officers, and I've got a Bible, and I've got a constitution. He says, if Pre President Johnson should expire while we're in the air, 30,000 feet above the desert, I have to come out with the box and show Vice President Humphrey how to be President of the United States instantly. That's what the box has, and I'm in charge of it. In other words, you're sleeping with the box that changes presidents. Is that right? That's right. Well, how do you know this fellow? He said, well... It's a strange story, he says, but we were brought up in a reform school. Well, were you juvenile offenders yourselves? No. In the state where we were reared, they didn't have a, a special orphan home. And if your parents were burned alive in a building, or if they shot each other, or if they ran off and left you in a garbage can, then 
You too were put in this reform school with the rapists and the murderers and the car thieves. And he says, we were little fellas when we were put there. He said he had a fire in his house and his parents were burned. And one of my parents went to jail and the other one couldn't make it, so they put me there. The court sent me there. So we spent our youth around rapists and car thieves and homicides, youthful offenders. And what do you do now? I said to the fullback, he says, I'm coaching over here at University College, Nairobi. And what do you do again? He said, I guard the box that makes Vice President Humphrey the president in case President Johnson dies. How on earth could you come out of a junk heap like that and do what you're doing now? How selective were you about your environment? How did you screen out the negatives and allow the positives to flow through? Well, they used all the freedom they had. They stood fast in the freedom wherewith Christ will make us all free. If we are not yoked again in bondage. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that thou wouldst lift up our heads and allow us to see how free we really are. Save us from the mischief of wallowing in tribalism. Save us from cheap slogans that cause us to be so inhuman to our fellow man. Save us from that laziness that causes us to follow sheep-mindedly those who would lead us astray. Save us from that moral fatigue which causes us to give up so easily. And help us to find that moral energy by which we rise up with wings as eagles, running without growing weary and walking without fainting. In the very strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.